0: Let the games begin. By taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Chit chat. Chit chat, thank you.
1: Conversation must be stimulating. Still, you need a set of aesthetic guidelines to put it in social perspective, I think. Maybe what we need here is a fresh perspective.
0: Fresh points of view. Stimulating conversation. I thought it would put things in perspective for you.
1: Let's begin. All right! All right, awesome. Episode eleven uh, this week we have my friend Jason. He's uh, our old friends back in living in uh, the Divisadero House in San Francisco. Jason, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, right, thanks for having me on. It's good to, good to talk to you again, man.
1: Yeah, it's been been too long. Haven't seen as many faces as I would have liked this last year. So,
0: Jason, did you uh,
2: did you come to last time I saw you? I think was that VR. Uh, what was it called? The, the portal or something it was in um i think it was like san bruno is this
0: where we put the backpacks on and, and did the I did. yeah that. we were in there we were shooting zombies we, were, we had the yeah. backpacks on it was it was the three of us yeah that was pretty dope i you know i got a quest two i think i was telling, talking to peter about this i got a quest two when it came out in october and it was really the first vr thing that you know i had made any sort of investment in and it's been really amazing i have to see like i think that device is i don't know i think it might end up being like the commodore 64 of vr or something it's a thing that kind of is accessible enough for everybody to get and then it draws all this other stuff and it just really feels like that kind of a moment
1: um yeah i've I've heard great things about it so i haven't actually tried it (laughs) i kind of just like jettisoned from vr pretty hard so (laughs) <laughs>
0: I, know, I know you did like in a way that <laughs> I feel like we should unpack sometime because it's totally getting mainstream again. It's very, or, you know, or the, there was that little pulse, you know, a few yeah. years ago. And then I do you think, I mean, I, I'm amazed at the number of people at work that have one of these headsets and really? how, open, how open people are. Yep. To, um, being able to maybe try and using it, uh, for meetings and things, it's kind of hard to get everybody coordinated because it still feels like a little bit of a game, but, I think it would be remarkably effective at that. And, you know, you look at the way hardware works, uh, you look where we are with GPUs on PCs right now, and you know that that migrates eventually, that power anyway, migrates onto these headsets eventually. Um, so this untethered VR, easy thing, uh, is, is a really great form factor.
2: The uh, one, one interesting concept uh, or use case for it, I heard, was uh, space travel to Mars, having a, uh, you know, VR headsets to de-stress or kind of socialize and play games because that way it's just less moving around and, uh, you know, you just have a much richer experience.
0: I, I think that there's some, there's got to be some truth to that. I have found it useful just in COVID. I haven't been able to say visit my family. Uh, and so I have these two my niece and nephew are in Michigan, and I just haven't seen anybody in a while. And I got their family an Oculus, and uh, they had coincidentally bought one for one of the kids anyway, so now they have two. So now I get on there and I play, you know, just simple games uh, with my niece and nephew. And it's awesome. I mean, it's a really engaging thing everybody stays really engaged you know there's something a little stressful about phone calls and zoom calls and stuff they're kind of out of your your normal way of interacting but in vr everyone's in there able to be some version of themselves and the technology is good enough that i can often get things like body language and stuff like that just you know the simple act of being able to turn your head and look at somebody and know that you're doing that is a huge huge deal so i'm yeah. a, i'm a big fan of it for for human social stuff
1: definitely the most present way to do something virtually, currently, I would say, like maybe if there was like a mech suit you could interact with and they could interact with. You, like, uh, okay.
2: <laughs> I just imagine that for meetings, like <laughs> someone just <laughs> meetings not going well, you just pick up, you know, like your AK forty seven, just blast into the chest. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: pretty funny. It's like that would be like the ar version of, of this stuff it's, everybody's got their goggles out at work and yeah you can kind of pull out you can pull out like a big like bugs bunny giant hammer and just bam
1: <laughs> 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 yeah it's like these fleshy me- mesh suits that are just sitting around a conference table that like energize and <laughs> face the <laughs> space on top of them or something like
2: Yeah, I get real creative with it you know people have been doing something i heard lately is uh speaking of gaming is um more like like role playing games with uh, uh, like Grand Theft Auto. So like people will go in and they'll like be in character and like interacting with each other. Um, I don't think it's VR necessarily, but I, I do think there's like a VR version of of Grand Theft Auto Online. Um, but that that could get real crazy because like you know it's just like it's, it's like these hyper immersive experiences that a lot of people are already kind of doing, right? Like the what's the uh, LARPing it's what it's called, like live action role-playing community.
1: Oh, that's actually a really interesting idea. What if you combined VR with LARPing, right? So you'd have like four heroes or something, and then you'd have like maybe 20 other people who are playing the NPCs. Well, I guess they'd be player characters, right? But, you know, kind of like in that capacity. There's that movie coming out with Ryan Reynolds. It's been delayed like a million times, but I think it's called uh, Free Guy or something. But it's it's that concept where an NPC wakes up <laughs> and then starts playing. <laughs> it's literally it's, it starts to get more and more lifelike
2: then because it's like it's like this person realized they were in the system and it's like, oh no, it's like society. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I the Grand Theft Auto, I hadn't heard about that, but like it raises a question like what's a the Grand Theft Auto was the game that for me I had gotten old enough and it, it was just edgy enough that I was like, mm, I don't know, this one
1: feels a little <laughs> like like it could be damaging <laughs> to young kids or whatever. I, but the, the desire to actually go inside that game <laughs> and actually be one of those characters is to kind of takes it up an extra, extra notch there. Oh, it definitely was damaging. I was <laughs> younger when it first came out and I remember like having a car and then I picked up a prostitute. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> Like this car started shaking. I was like, this, this, that was definitely not like, <laughs> I didn't think I'd be doing that when I walked on to Grand Theft Auto <laughs> at that age. Yeah. yeah,
0: definitely. Now it's all first person, like one of those, like my nephew just plays a lot of shooting games. Um, I don't think it's out of control. And he does a lot of dad stuff, but still, you know, he just, I, I don't know it's a big experience to put in front of people.
2: In sure. It's also, you know, I kind of wonder when were, we were talking a little bit about this before, but like for younger people, you know, kind of, and, and the impact that leaves, I, <laughs> I, it's weird. I've been having this realization, maybe it's cause I'm, I'm coming up on 30 this year, but uh, just, I feel like I'm getting, getting to this like weird point where I'm like, like old and like, kind of like not cranky, but, Like, uh, I'm starting to have thoughts about (laughs) like, oh, think of the children, like stuff for (laughs) stuff that I didn't have like five, 10 years ago, um, where it's like, wow, this, this would be like harmful for young people. Or like, this is, you know, this is irresponsible, Um, you know, for something like Grand Theft Auto or all these like VR experiences. I wonder, it's like, it's so hyper stimulating. And so, so much is going on. How much is that going to affect? their ability to uh, have fun outside of those experiences. Right.
1: My wife is pregnant. And we're expecting a kid in June. And I've always had a lot of thoughts about how I'll raise, like, I know a child. Um, but, you know, like we were talking about that, the culture, it's like, you know, you have so much input in their lives. Like, how are you going to shape it? Well, and you've
0: already started thinking about that stuff, right? Like, I think you naturally, I mean, just in your case, you you, know, you moved to a, a new environment that gave you different things, right? So mm-hmm. it's access to family or culture and, you know, uh, weather <laughs> for a lot of people, but you, know, you kind of picked a context there in order to help develop, you know, I'm sure some of that was intentional, maybe, and a lot maybe um, subconscious, but I mean, is yeah. that, does that ring true to you?
1: yeah, I would say 90% of the reason we live here is for a family.
0: Yeah. Why else would you live there? (laughs) (laughs) The weather. (laughs) Extremes. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So, and that's just responding to the exact, this exact same thing that we rarely make explicit, which is that culture really is the the thing. It's 95% of what, what's going to guide, um, what people what people end up doing, or how they they feel about things, how they see things, and frame things, and you can't as a parent explicitly set your kid's culture all on your own because they have way too many inputs from teachers and uh, friends, parents, and and the people they see at the park. And um, most of your work is really that most of the time, you know, what they experience at home and stuff like that. You might get one or two explicit dad lessons in there once in a while. Not (laughs) kids are really receptive to that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's what we were kind of talking about before we hit record. You know, it's all the. I took. I completely agree with what you were saying. It's all the little things, though, um, that really add up.
0: Ecosystem. Yeah, Yeah.
1: I think that's a good
2: pivot into uh, kind of some of the stuff I think we originally wanted to talk about today, which is uh, team culture and culture. You know, building it, I guess, intentionally. Um, maybe speak to some of that stuff. Get us kicked off.
1: Yeah, I feel like you have a really good range of things to pick from in your experience. So, I guess, what are some things you didn't like, and what are some things you did? Maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and just to preface all this stuff, this is just you know, obviously my own personal experience with with these issues. Um, and certainly, don't pretend to be any kind of authority or anything, but my own kind of lived experience with this stuff and what I've thought about it over the years. And I've seen both sides of this. I've seen companies that or you know, companies, startups, groups, teams, uh, kind of all of these things um, that rely on different ways of organizing themselves. And some tend towards the very, uh, you know, tightly, hierarchically, highly planned organizational structure. Some go completely what I might call the opposite end of the spectrum of um, very intuitive, reflexive, you know, high bias towards decisions being made and and moving fast and really just working almost entirely off of of instinct. Those tend to be more high emotion environments, but they also tend to be able to break through assumptions and change things in a way that, you know, the the groups at the other end of the scale are not. You know, you look at, uh, yeah, so I mean, there's lots of ways to do this stuff. They all can work in terms of bringing a company forward and organizing things, obviously but I always wonder about uh, what are we getting, you know, what are you getting out of the folks on your team and what does the experience of being on your team really feel like to folks and what does it bring out of them? And that stuff, that's not process or emails or meeting formats, that's culture. And that culture is how they frame, they're gonna frame the work that you do together, how they're gonna frame the experience that they have, how they're gonna frame the actions of leaders at the company that they may not have direct access to. it's the enthusiasm that they're going to use when they describe their work to their friends and family and then the feedback that they're going to get from that. These are really important things. And, you know, if you have, you can organize people's work to kind of efficiently get, make sure it gets done. But if you're not really speaking to those other aspects, that's all you're getting from folks. And you're always going to have to, in some way, kind of drag it out. And you're always going to be subject to um, folks in burnout, checked out, leaving... Uh, or just simply not giving you their best because you haven't inspired them to do so i know that's kind of where i I come at management issues and it's really the only thing that i think is really moves the lever on stuff i don't know does that map to any of your experiences and
1: yeah i mean if if basically everyone i interact with is someone i want to interact with like on my team you know and then other teams right like Whoever you're dealing with in day to day, if if those are people I enjoy working with, it doesn't really matter a lot of what about what the work is. Um, I mean, work can be bad as well, or very good in some circumstances. But I think it's all about the people I work with, and like you're saying, like how they are reacting to things, hopefully in a positive way. I
0: mean, you know, like think about your workplaces where. You know, like you might not dislike the work or dislike the environment, but it's something that you're just kind of going in and doing. Versus times when you've been so engaged, and I've seen you in these modes too, when you've been so engaged with something that you can't you can't put it down. You think about it when you're in the shower, when you're falling asleep. You're happiest when you can address it directly instead of you know being distracted by anything else. Um, we we this is ours is a creative industry. We don't think about it that way enough, but I, I, really believe in that, that and creativity is really uh, something that kind of comes up through your, your body and through your kind of internal state, and if you really want to maximize someone's creative energy and really get them in there to own it and put in all that extra sort of thinking and produce so much better work, um, you really have to make them feel like they're thriving and feel like they, that's really all they want to do.
1: But, I mean, it's very, I would say it's uh, people in the Bay are the smartest people I've met of anywhere in the U.S. And I feel like depending on where they are, uh, sometimes they work the longest as well. Um, and personally, I, I kind of, I, I agree with what you're saying, and I've definitely been in those you know, zones where it's all I want to do, you know, 12 hours a day. But as I've gotten older, I realized that long-term, it might be a little bit healthier to have a balance, you know, where I can hopefully think about something for a certain portion of the day, but then at the end of the day, kind of leave it until tomorrow or, you know, if it's Friday, Monday. Um, I don't know. Do you you think the Bay is good for work-life balance or not?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I had never just personally encountered as much attention on work life balance as I did when I moved here from the from the East Coast. So, you know, I'd been in the Midwest for half my life, and then I had been in DC for another third of it, and then I moved out here, and that's where I really started happening upon that stuff. In fact, my first leadership job out here, I worked really closely with the with the CEO and, the, and his co-founder, and you know, could talk really kind of bluntly with them and I was really lamenting early on this sort of work-life balance what I what I was reading is more like a, a work ethic uh thing people were having where it's just you know engineers are taking half a day off all the time or like I feel like working home next <laughs> from home next week or whatever and I was railing against I was like I can't believe this we pay these people you know x amount of money it's insane you can't get paid for this work anywhere else like and they're like doing all they're doing yoga classes in the middle of the morning and i can never get them into me like what's going on he's like that's just kind of how it is out here man um and i so in that way and i have found that to be true and so in that way i found barrier culture to be much more explicitly concerned with work-life balance and i think the majority of the jobs here do a great job at that there's this there's this idea of like companies that drive their people, you know, 12, 14 hours a day and all this kind of stuff. And it's not that common. I think it's often exaggerated and it's certainly short lived. If it does happen, um, some companies have a rep for that, but uh, I don't think that's the, like the, the main culture out here. Uh, what did you feel that way?
1: Well, I guess I didn't really have a super typical Bay like company, but I mean, it did feel like most of the people I knew, you know, would, would spend, like you were saying, kind of their whole day at whatever office it was during the week, Um, with some exceptions, but maybe, maybe like you're saying, they're not quite actively working the whole time and doing yoga classes or something else.
0: Well, I you know I don't want to speak for everybody, and there are certainly different types of jobs. I'm I'm also speaking kind of from from like being an engineer in the Bay, which I think is a little mm. bit different, for better or worse. Um, <clears throat> they're just kind of different concerns there, and people do end up working long hours, but typically when that happens on a sustained basis, is because they love their work and they have the space to to be able to do it. You know, when I was a bachelor. You know, work and sailing were pretty much all I wanted to do. And so you could look at that schedule and go, oh, wow, you know, somebody's working themselves with that. But that it was just I wanted to live inside that work because it was really engaging and the environments I were in, you know, kind of gave me what I needed to to, to want to do that. Um, I've had now, I've had other environments, though, that don't uh, inspire that as much. And I find myself really setting hard limits that are also acceptable because that's, you know, how that works here. But, you know, yeah, uh, I've definitely had roles where um, you know you're less inclined to to think about and want to be working in it all the all the time, and I find I generally found those to be stressful. I'd rather have the stress of trying to find time for work that I want to do than um, trying to want to do the work that I have time for. If that makes sense.
2: For sure. Yeah, it's it's the work life thing is interesting to me because it it means different things for different people. Right. So, you know, some folks, and it, a lot of it depends too on, on kind of where you're at in your life. Like I remember my first job, it was a lot more like younger folks, uh, on the team. And now there's a lot more people with families or, uh, people, you know, going on, going on, uh, parental leave. And it just, I think they're like, I didn't have this awareness before, but there's a lot of time that just goes into, that kind of work, right? And it's it's sort of more apparent now because of COVID because everyone's working at home, but it's like taking care of the kids, groceries, you know, house repairs, like the internet's going down, like whatever it is, um, you know, versus someone who's young, single, like kind of still trying to go make a name for themselves. It's, uh, there's different, I guess, considerations. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting because like it almost forces people to become more efficient with, with their time. Um, so even though these folks have all these other responsibilities, they've gotten more like efficient at like getting, hitting the main points uh, and figuring that out. So it's interesting to watch that progression. And
1: it's so true. I mean, different companies will have such different cultures depending on their age, like the industry. Um, and yeah, the, just who, who the people are, who started them.
0: I know I've, I've now had sort of, Lots of, you know, so I'm over 40 now and I have a, I'm a, I'm a dad to a young child a single dad to a young child. And so the, the relationship I have with work now is a lot different than it would have been, uh, you know, maybe four years ago in terms of kind of the, the space that I have for it and how much headspace it takes up and being a parent, any parent knows this. There's just a, there's a constant background thread of parenting that never stops and it you don't have the same resources for the work that you used to do and if you're lucky you can find and craft a role that that meets with that in terms of what what's required to feel successful and feel like you're thriving there but um you certainly can't keep up the same pace as when you were at least with work um, as when you were you know young and single and that's that's one of the reasons why i think our our industry tends towards uh that archetype, at least for for companies at a certain size and growth phase, because you really you end up really needing that um, that kind of energy. And I think as you get older, you need to learn how to be in a more leveraged role so that you can direct that energy rather than creating it of your own resources. It's a really really important transition for folks to make.
1: That's really insightful. Um, do you so? kind of playing into that a little more. Um, (laughs) This is something I wanted to get into. How do you, when you're looking at somebody to bring on uh, to your team, right? or company for an engineering role. (laughs) Going into that interview, how do you interview a software engineer, right? If they're 20 or, right, maybe like 30s or something, like... What are you looking for, right? Does it change?
0: So nothing changes about who I interview. Um, and I, this is backed up by stats. I don't think it's like a huge secret, but most of the folks that I interview do skew younger. It just, that's who comes through the door um, most of the time. But it doesn't really matter. What I, just what I personally, and you you have to support this with supplementary signal, of course, um, that can be a little more quantitative or a little more you know, just closer to the work. But what I really look for and try to sense in somebody is their team orientedness and just kind of who they are as a person and how, how the work sits with them. And I will freely now, I didn't do this as much earlier on, but I've learned to trust that, that intuition because it's, it's never, it's never been wrong when I've had doubts about something about somebody. um, It's always panned out to be uh, a problem. And so you look for these kinds of things and it and just team orientedness brings along with it. It's kind of hard to define, but it brings along with it so many other things around character and who, the, who, you know, the type of person is going to show up and who they're going to show up for how they're going to be able to be motivated. When I talk to candidates who lead with things like all the boundaries they want to set with work. Um, and I don't mean hours wise. I, again, I've never really bought into that philosophy. I don't think it makes any sense, but Um, more just like, you know, well, they, you know, they're going to join if they're going to be able to work on the choice projects, or if you're really going to be, you know, they want to make sure they can get a promotion six months or, um, you know, they've got some other offers, so they just kind of want to know what it is you're going to be able to do for them better. You know, just stuff like that. I lose interest really quickly. Um, I pulled back at the offer stage because people started expressing those things. Um, I generally can can get a sense from somebody in about fifteen twenty minutes, kind of how they approach this stuff, and what so what I look for is that character and that team orientedness because that gets you through. I mean, heart will get get you a long way.
1: How do you su- how do you suss that out? How do you are there questions you like to go to or well, like, how do you bring more, that up
0: more accurately? I should instead of saying team orientedness, I should say whatever Jason's version of team orientedness is.
1: Sure, of course, I really do
0: right. So in my case, um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's how much maybe responsibility. I try to get first. I just try to get a sense of kind of who somebody is and what they care about, and that helps me later to to speak to their concerns when I maybe want to start convincing them to join. It also gives me areas to kind of follow up on and helps me kind of kind of color what we're doing. So um, I talk about why. I'll ask, hey, you know, great to meet you. You know, why are you interested in in, our, in company I and mean, it's a pretty common but what I'm looking for those traits are expressing so again if it's like well I you know you're about to IPO so you know who wouldn't want to get in on that versus um you know I've had some some passing interest in this stuff I've played around with it or I mean there's different ways for people to express it which is how much personal responsibility do they take um and how connected to the are, are they to the work versus the outcome of their careers or financials or or something you know status and things like that and if somebody's directly connected to the work where they, they, they really, um, uh, again, I think this comes along with creative mindsets, but they really, really take ownership of what they've done and they can, they can talk about it, they're proud of it. Um, those types of traits kind of start to come through. So that may not all feel like team orientedness, but um, it, that's just my moniker for lots of different little character traits in terms of how somebody approaches the work and what they're focused on. So it's hard to describe <laughs> to say well and you have it's to kind of calibrated too you have to do it a hundred times before you you have to make some mistakes and, and hire people and and kind of retro that later before you start to really hone in on that stuff and it varies with every candidate what you end up talking about and what you end up asking,
1: but it's kind of it it goes to i mean it sounds like the root of it is like, what's your motivation, right, which is funny yeah. because most people. I think would say, you know, I'm looking for a job to get paid. Right. And then they would hope, you know, that the work is also interesting or maybe that's just the way that I come at it. I would wonder if you weren't getting paid for the role you're in, if you would work there. Right. If I wasn't getting paid for the role I'm in now, would I work where I'm working? Right. I would, I would question the same thing to you. Okay. Like, I'm not sure. What what would your answers be? Salary is zero starting tomorrow. Oh, tough one.
2: I have to think about it. All right, Jason, why don't you go first?
0: At least it's a tough one. That's a, I mean, most people would say no, which I think is really that that's a fail somewhere. You know, it's a fail that might not be fixable in terms of the type of company it is or or what it does. But in most cases, it feels like that's an opportunity lost if somebody really wouldn't work um, if they didn't, if they weren't getting paid or didn't need the money. The didn't need the money part for better or worse, comes up fairly often here in the, in, in the Bay, or at least you know this diaspora of, of companies that are structured this way to grow like this. And that's a really tough thing. And I think a lot of companies just go, oh, well, we're going to have to deal with a lot of attrition because we just went public and everyone's rich now. Which, yeah, that's probably at scale the most practical way you can approach it, but it, it feels like a lost opportunity because why not instead create an environment where people can thrive uh, so much that they'd rather not lose access to that. I want to create an environment that people don't want to leave versus one that I have to convince them to come to. Um, you do that. Everything else falls in line. I mean, attrition falls in line, um, uh, ramp speed, you know, engagement levels. Uh, uh, so all the metrics that you might measure around people get better when you just focus on helping them thrive.
1: Very interesting. Cause like what you're saying is if the company's successful, anyone who joined at any date, right. Won't need the money. Hopefully it's a high growth company. Right. Right. And so then if they were initially motivated by the money, they're going to leave. And that's why you have these vesting schedules um, and cliffs to like keep people in for, yeah. Huh.
0: Yeah, you have vesting schedules to kind of create a golden handcuff situation if you're lucky or create the feeling that that might be a golden handcuff situation, whatever it is you can do. But again, it's just like – and it, it makes sense. Of course you're going to do that. But man, it just – if that's if that's what you're thinking of is the, the kind of walls that you can put between people and, and being with you and not with you versus, again, uh, some kind of downhill slope that just draws them in they can't help it.
1: So what would be the flip side of golden handcuffs? What is, you know, if you had to make the opposite of that offer?
0: Well, you're always, I don't know if there's an opposite. Uh, you're always going to do it too. And I would certainly recommend everybody have, you know, vesting schedules and things. Some companies are getting more, are experimenting more, right? I think Facebook does monthly vesting like right away. So that's a big change. Um, the, uh, so the opposite of golden handcuffs uh, is more like, well, <laughs> for instance, do you think you have to convince, I guess in a couple of famous cases, this has been the case, but do you really have to convince an NBA player to show up for a game, show up for work? Mm. Let me say this. Do you have to convince uh, an ambitious young rookie or early career NBA player to show up to practice in games?
1: No but i would also i mean i i think it's like what you're talking about there's a lot of different reasons people do things right i think like the really great players kobe bryant other you know uh they they're there to it's like the competitiveness of it jordan right like he just wanted to be competitive in everything so that's why he was there Mm -hmm. and got really good uh but I bet a lot of people get into like rapping or sports or, you know, maybe racing cars because of the everything around it, you know, um, it, it it's interesting, right? Like, I mean, they probably would still be driving, you know, racing privately, but it's just like it's a whole nother level
0: yeah i mean well and i i want to come back to that too because i had another point about why they want to show up but uh i mean there's a certain amount of ego in anyone who's ambitious right because you're seeing a version of yourself that doesn't exist yet and you're driven to make it so and there's that is by nature uh uh and a kind of narcissistic impulse. I think it's beneficial in many cases, and in any cases it goes to the extreme, right? We just we've seen lots of this. Um, but for anybody who operates at a high level, including you know engineers or other you know just folks we run into all the time, there's some element of that, and that's what drives them. That doesn't mean that they're not they can't be team oriented and they can't play for team. Um, and the, in the best versions of those folks who are ambitious, but they want to be ambitious in a team context and recognize that that's just what appeals to them, or they recognize the value of that. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you look at the great basketball players in their own way, they invested heavily in the team around them. In the case of Kobe and Michael, uh, they invested in a sort of crack in the whip kind of way. They were so talented that they could say, if you want to play with me, you're going to have to do way better than you've ever done before and kind of coming full circle and and so that's an investment in team in the same way that a different player leader might invest in encouraging ways and put a lot of time and energy into helping people better themselves whatever it might be there's different ways to do it but all of it's an investment in that idea of team and they only Mm -hmm. do it enough to help the team and when it gets toxic um then they've they're not team oriented really but you know when you look at somebody who's playing with with kobe bryant Mm -hmm. and being you know, kind of driven in that way, and they still keep showing up. The reason why, it's an extreme example of this, but they keep showing up because they want access to that environment. There's only one place in the world you can play NBA basketball, and it's in the NBA. And whether or not, uh, you know, and so it's that opportunity to work there that brings you back. You just can't, you don't, even after you're rich, you want to keep your access to it. And I think that there's a, a tiny, <laughs> way less extreme version of that that we can do in our everyday when we're building and working with teams and creating an environment that really draws people back in. They like their their work that they're doing. They like the environment and the way they're treated. Um, they like their, their co-workers and the team that's been assembled. They like the mission. They like what it feels like when they tell people about their work. If you create something like that that's hitting on all those levels, um, Kind of, why would somebody leave it, even if they were rich? Yeah.
2: Yeah, something this reminds me of is, I think it was Simon Sinek who said, uh, "There's, I might be misattributing, but a difference between intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Uh, the extrinsic being, like you said, money. Intrinsic being, there's some some higher or deeper." Reason for doing whatever it is that they're doing, right? so for Elon, right it's I mean most people, if you're worth a hundred billion plus you know what like why would you spend eighty hours a week still working on whatever it is? Um, and I think I think there's something to that. I think there's something deeply uh, ingrained in in human beings about finding meaningful work and and doing meaningful work, right. I think the challenge sounds like, if I had to summarize what you're saying, is scaling it and and in not just like you know number of people, but also in the complexity and types of work. Right? How do you how do you maintain the same incentives at you know ten people versus or you know strong incentives? Let's just say not even the same ten people or ten person company, hundred person, thousand, hundred thousand. Right? It it starts to change and. Having seen, I think the the small side of things and the large side of things, um, it's 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 interesting to see kind of how it changes, right? So like you can have a pod of ten people that that behaves, you know, totally differently because it's a part of this much bigger thing versus a you know ten person startup. Um, is there? Do you have a favorite kind of size for of, of company that you worked for? Was there a sweet spot?
0: I don't know. I'd be interested for you guys, too, who've seen both sides of that stuff. Um, I I certainly, by nature, tend towards smaller. And in almost all my experiences, really small companies, less than 50 or 100 people. Uh, often much, much smaller. And it's it's really very close to the work and very close to, to the humanity of the people around you. I've recently gotten more experience at a larger company. Uh, and you know, not huge yet, but big enough that a lot of that's been abstracted away. So whereas before, say, on the recruiting side, I may have been the first contact that somebody had, and I may have ushered them through the process and and gotten all sorts of different kinds of read from, again, also people that are on my team that I'm very familiar with and calibrated to, um, that when we get to the end and I need to close someone. You know, I need to decide whether or not to hire someone and then close them and bring them on and get them launched. It's all of that whole relationship that we've set up that allows at least me to do it. That's the only way I know how to do it. And at larger companies, a lot of that stuff is abstracted away. You have recruiters. You've got uh, people from other teams who do evaluations. There's a lot of stuff that is really standardized, and you have way fewer touch points, often way later in the process um, to, to get to know somebody. So it's a different way of building teams. I respect it because I don't think you can, you can scale intuition and and calibration and stuff. It's very hard to do that. Um, but I do think you can infuse a very process oriented way of doing things with, with some of that humanity, uh, to make them a little bit more effective. So, you know, things like the way you, again, the way you interview and the experience people have there and how well they're represented and, the types of people you look for, the types of people who get screened before anyone ever really talks to them. That's
2: tricky things. because you're you're trying to automate this thing that's very very human. I, I think the, the when you when we were talking about culture earlier, the word that came to mind was sort of connective tissue, because it it fills in all those gaps that process doesn't fill in. Right. I mean, when you're if you're if you're going through like a process for, I guess getting like legal approval on something, right? Like there's, there's like laid out steps to go through, right? Or, you know, we all, we all have scripts, right? For interacting with, you know, bank teller or someone at the grocery store or, you know, whoever. Um, but uh, there's those, those scripts only last so long, right? So there's, there's kind of out, the stuff outside of that. How do you deal with those little interactions? How do you also um, ask for help? right for someone who's maybe within your org or outside of your org or you know kind of going around and finding finding those answers is it, there's this sort of meta skill of like navigating the culture that really holds everything else together right without that it doesn't matter you can throw all the process you want at it it doesn't it's not going to hold up
0: yeah and and that's that's something that's really being attacked right now with covid um, the I wanted to to pause for a second though and question the the premise there. You started with you go you know it's a real challenge because you're trying to automate something that and I'm paraphrasing here that's you know something that's inherently human. And so I question that motivation. Like trying to automate doesn't to me seem like the the right first approach to trying to scale that that kind of bespoke human interaction that we all that really helps people thrive. Um, and if you just kind of focus on it from that automated uh, angle, you're going to squeeze out, your, you naturally round off and square off the human parts of that in order to be able to produce some kind of process. And if you just entirely trust the process and, and, and kind of elevate it to this level of being authoritative instead of just another signal, then, um, in my opinion anyway, you can, you, you just, the, the teams you create are less effective, at least the, um you know the the experience people have of working there is just not is not the same as when they're really, really treated in a, a human way throughout. Um, one of my my beefs and every company does this uh as far as I know and I don't know that the ideas that I have are better, but it would be like great to try them out. Uh or it would feel good to me to try them out sometime. Um the idea of you know the way we interview software engineers, you brought this up Peter earlier. Um, I think is kind of inhumane in a way that, that shuts down their, their natural abilities uh, or is, is geared that way. And we have a generation of engineers and it's more and more prevalent for folks to do so much prep that these interviews aren't often reported as being a problem. Um, but in my experience, giving them and being on the other side of the table having them, I think that there's a lot about the context that really makes that signal very noisy. For instance, anxiety, the notion of anxiety is almost never addressed. And when I look around our industry, um, that's a pretty prevalent thing. I mean, we are, um, a lot of folks, and especially a lot of the most talented folks, are on the introverted side and are used to working alone in, in a free flowing way. And when you put them in a structured interview context, a lot of times that goes, it's not that they're just not suited to that, it really goes against the things that they always rely on in order to be creative and code. So they rely on some of that solitude, maybe, or some of that time to think, or the ability to work without talking out loud. Um, there's a there's a, a frame that's foisted on people that, you know, you, you're saying, well, I want to see how you work. You know, you're going to write everything out on the whiteboard and do all this stuff. But really what you're saying is, I want to see how you work in this exact situation, which I don't think is much like the work that we actually do. So... I try to look for ways to to humanize that process and express to candidates that my main goal is for them to be uh, represented as well as they can be i want them to come away going you know what even if they didn't do as well as they could uh they, it felt fair uh and they didn't feel like you know the interviewer the process really got in the way of them of being able to show their talent so like one thing like here's maybe something more concrete and I'll show up. Uh, so one thing I do with candidates, no matter what kind of interview I'm giving, um, I'll express uh, in some way how I have fallen flat on my face in that same context in the past. And I'll acknowledge that the context is a little artificial. And I'll let them know that I, whatever space they need in order to address things, they should let me know. Uh, and I, I give examples of what I've accommodated in the past. And this little preamble Um, humanizes me which relaxes the situation Uh, it takes the it takes some of the hierarchy of of the evaluator and the person being evaluated away because you've just kind of evened out um, your relationship with each other so it feels a little bit more collaborative Um, you've acknowledged that this is an imperfect medium which takes some of that stress away you know if someone's not well suited for the medium Or for the for the context, they're going to spend a lot of time thinking about (laughs) in that moment, thinking about how ill suited they are, Um, and I want to just acknowledge that so that they they you know can kind of integrate that in the the room instead of you know feeling like they have to outperform it. Um, A lot of these things in a lot of cases have really helped candidates um, relax and and be much more conversational, and I can tell the difference. Um, And I've gotten a lot of comments later that that someone really appreciated the, the. the call out—that's an easy thing. That's free, and anybody can do it because everybody's falling flat on their face. Um, but we just have to think about this kind of stuff and 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 not try to systematize and not give people set thing statements that they should make or whatever. Just help them lean into their humanity and bring it into the context, and that can really help the result. I don't know if that makes any sense. I kind of rambled on there for a while.
1: No, that, that makes a ton of sense because I'm thinking of how opposite that is to like my worst interview experience, which would be like, uh, here's a link, answer these questions. And then here are a series of tests, right? <laughs> like coding challenges and your results will be emailed to somebody and they'll get back to you. I think that was for Amazon. Um, and it's like, okay, <laughs> like th- th- this is interesting. Um, and like other ones that I've enjoyed more, like the way I like to work is I'll get a problem. I like to do a fair bit of research beforehand um, and double check. I, I know what I'm working with, you know, just like setting it up. Uh, and then start to attack it. And that's a process that isn't typically like a whiteboard coding challenge type thing. Um so that's, that's the type of thing I lean to. Um, but you're right. There's there's so many different people and ways to approach it. I I
0: don't Oh, sorry. You go. I was going to say that the the person you're interviewing on the other side of the table is in an unbelievably stressful context. Um, they may be not working at that point and needing to find something, uh, maybe they are working uh, and they've but they're looking around for a new job and they uh, want this one and it creates that that kind of desire there that's just that's stressful there's also a situation just the basic situation of signing up uh, signing yourself up for rejection it's an unbelievable stressful unbelievably stressful thing to do and you've got all this stuff that comes together in this context. Um, it's really on the company to to get that stuff out of the room as much as you can. Um, otherwise, again, it's just kind of. It always strikes me as kind of lazy, emotionally lazy, maybe, um, in our industry to just kind of go, "Oh well, here's your problems, you know. we um, will, you know, we'll score you when we're done. You know, who cares? I mean, that's there's no thought put into what you're what you're conveying there." Um, Anyway, again, I think the, a lot of this stuff is free, but you have to, you know, have some high EQ folks around thinking about it and really paying attention to it and seeing how leveraged it is.
1: Sure.
2: Lots <laughs> <laughs> to think about. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm thinking back to my own experiences interviewing, um, you know, it's it, it it was it was stressful, and then it's it's so weird how it's not it's not at all reflective of the job itself, right? It's just uh this this abstract process. I mean, I, but you you could probably find that in a lot of different industries. I think software is just just a weird one because it's I don't know. My my guess. I, do you know how it started? Like the these like why it is the way it
0: is? Well, the two things that I'm aware of. <clears throat> that I tend to key off of there, so I'm certainly you know whatever i like' just been a guy working here, so I don't really know if this is the case, but for me, the first company that I think introduced the the notion of of really hard tech problems on the way in was Google that was the first company that I heard of doing that, and the engineers that I knew that interviewed there at the time and I'm talking two thousand year two thousand two thousand one um the folks who interviewed there at the time was a really novel experience. It wasn't something that people were used to. So maybe there were some other companies out here doing that at the time, but Google's where I first um, saw that. And that built on, a, a, there was just a, a blog post by this guy, Joel Spolsky, who was uh, really influential in like 98, 99, 2000, in terms of how to run a startup, right? So like we talk about like agile companies and agiles, it was that kind of, It was addressing that, but but before all that stuff was there. And so he would kind of talk about stuff. And one of his big posts that went really wide in the industry was get people to write code, just on the, you know, he's like on the way in, just get them to write some code. And his idea was just simple, anything, a shell script, anything, just get them to write something, um, as an evaluation tactic. And that really kind of, um, I think spurred a lot of thinking around that and, and it normalized it. And, uh, and then again, Google took it to the next level. Where I, saw, where I think it got to where it is now, though, um, is I, I associated with Facebook and the kind of competitive coding culture that came along with Mark Zuckerberg and, and maybe that, you know, just the, the folks who were coming into the industry at that time. And so the idea of hackathons and competitive coding and who can do it faster and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's always an element there when you're talking about talent. Um, so it's always been that way with engineers, but this really systematized it and made it, made it sort of normal to key off of those things. And I just, that's where I kind of started to separate. That's where the industry really changed uh, for me was when that stuff kind of became the norm. So that's what I associate our current framework with. Because a lot of times what I see is engineers who um, kind of a, a little bit delight in, in uh, screening somebody. They delight in finding like the smallest thing possible to keep, to kind of criticize someone on and reject them for. And that's, that's problematic because that's their stuff coming into the room versus objectively just having a relationship with somebody and kind of seeing how they work. So that's, that's kind of problematic too. And it really seeps into this process. Wow. It's like hazing, you know, they yeah, have to go through it. exactly, exactly. It's a little hazing. When I detect that, I, I pull people aside and i re-coach on that stuff and i remind them of all this kind of stuff like hey we're here to get the most out of everybody who walks through the door even if they don't work here yet so let's figure out how to do that and then the score will take care of itself
1: it's so interesting though, that little walk through history because you know in
0: the 2000s
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> no but i mean because yeah. you think about the 2000s or late late 90s right like websites were, you could sell a very basic website to a big company for a ton of money yeah. which now you know like probably a 12 year old with some interest could whip together you know on any of these platforms mm-hmm. um but it it kind of goes to like what we were talking about a little earlier you know, there are people in software engineering now who want to be, you know, in, an, like you're saying, you're creating that culture uh, where they want to be at like a Netflix, right? They want to be 10% of internet traffic at certain times, you know, um, like they they want that experience and that's that's where you get the competitiveness and like the the challenges and the the Zuckerbergs and everything else like that. Whereas before, right, it's like a small industry that's trying to to grow and get some validation where it's like, oh, can you code, right? That was the initial question. And now it's like, how good are you? Yeah. Like, let's get it here. brass tacks. Like, could you beat me, you know? Uh, so, yeah.
0: And every time I, I kind of see that attitude, I, and this is my own weakness, I, I get a little bit angry inside. Um, because it says to me that that person isn't really acknowledging their own failures and their own insecurities in an exclusive way. And they're kind of acting out in this, this other, this kind of hazing kind of way.
1: Um, it's interesting. In the
0: back, there's not team oriented.
1: Yeah. But there, there's aspects to it that are good, right? Like you want to inspire your coworkers to be better, right? Or be as good as they can be. Uh, like you are saying the Kobe analogy. Right.
0: okay actually it's a great thanks for bringing us back to that because there's there are different ways to do that. There's the Kobe way to do it and the Michael way to do it um, which is kind of what we're talking about here that's the hazing the hazing way mm-hmm. good enough to, to code here. Um, that can work but the only reason it really works for those guys and I'd argue the only reason it really works for the companies that do it is because they were such lights in the in their industry. That again, they created the kind of gravity that you pretty much put up with anything with. So if that's a culture they chose. Well, that's what you're going to do. You're going to get yelled at by Michael to play with Michael is to get yelled at by Michael. Right. It's going to and... bring out the best in you, but it's also going to bring out other stuff. So in that environment, that may be the best way to do it. I don't think that that's the best way to get creative people to expend as much of their creative energy as possible on what it is you're asking them to work on. I don't think that's the right way to to. Influence that particular set of people. Sure, that's what I focus on. I think again, another thing that you know, with scaled companies, you know, it, it's like a little bit more. You just need people to crank out features, and everything's measured, and you're not really trying to get. You're, you're organized around other things like scaled processes. You're not organized around. I'm getting the, you know ten tenths from everybody on the team, and look how happy and, they. Are, you know, so right. And, put up with attrition, you put up with. People only work exactly as you, you know, force them to, you put up with that stuff because you're at scale. It's different.
1: It's totally different. And so I'm going to go back to answering your previous question, which I think Sergei answered, you know, and in, in my experience, like, what have I found Yeah, different sizes and different ages, honestly, when I first got into it, mid twenties, now I'm in my thirties. Uh, and I have different goals, right? We're talking about environment, Like I changed where I was and my whole future for a certain life and environment and honestly where I work. Um, So I think maybe what we're kind of going towards is it depends on where the company is and where the people are, right? Are you a young startup with a bunch of 20 year olds who are ready to just like, you know, do anything and kind of egg on each other? Or like you're saying, are you maybe a little bit older and you're going to leverage that young talent for something else? Or maybe you're leveraging more experienced people who are, you know, just just trying to have like consistency. It's it's really interesting. I, I feel like when I first was looking for roles and jobs and things like stuff to work on, these things really never came to mind right? It was kind of just that competitive aspect that was there, but there's, there's so many layers.
0: Yeah. And it's a good point that different contexts require different approaches and and focus on different things. You know, like I love to, to go on about this stuff, but I'm also mostly suited for really bespoke high energy, early stage, not a lot of art out there already kind of projects, um, which demands a different set of, of skills, I think, and motivations than, um, see a more established, uh, company that isn't really trying to, you know, do things, innovate in those ways. They just need, you know, kind of reliable output. Um, that's a different, of course, that's a different team and a different set of motivations. Um, and yeah, the age thing is real, you know? Um, and I think that's why a lot of folks, as, as they get further in their careers, migrate towards um quieter, uh, I don't want to turn I, less ambitious or less, you know, but not that, that skunk works kind of company, um, because you end up getting, you know, your life's more complicated, you have bounds on what you can do, and your motivations are a little bit different, so you're not going to respond to those same things. And you're not going to be able to, you're not going to feel like you, you know, fit into the culture as much. There's it's not to put a hard gate on any age stuff, uh, different people at different ages thrive in different environments, but I think th- that does tend to kind of be the case. At least that's what I've noticed in myself and the people around me. Yeah,
2: it's, it's interesting because it's not quite like an age thing. I mean, I don't know. I guess how do we, how do we talk about this without being quote unquote like ageist? Um, cause I don't, I don't necessarily think it's, it's age, but it, it is sort of, I think depending on where you're at in your life, you can make certain predictions about what, what your needs are going to be. So, you know, or what, what your needs are right in terms of maybe salary or, or sort of flexibility and, and, um, you know, working conditions, that type of thing. Um,
0: what are your motivations? What get you to do the work?
2: You know? Yeah.
0: Um, that changes. I, yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the ways that can help, I read a blog post of when I was approaching 40 about turning 40. That, I was It presented a structure that I always found really interesting. And it, it kind of used 40 as an abstract um, point in time where something kind of changes. And it makes the point, I think, pretty well that that is actually almost always around the age of 40. But people hit it at different times. And there are other phases in life, too. And so if you just think of like, that that moment, like give it a, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, theta moment or something, you know, in your life where you kind of flip over. Yeah. Your motivation has changed a lot. You know, maybe you're a parent now, or you're just at the point where nobody in your life is talking about your potential anymore. They're just talking about who you are. That's a big motivating thing. It changes how you think about work. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, that, I noticed that anyway. I, I um, and I probably came to maturity, I did come to maturity much later in my life. So that's like a punch against ageism too, because I'm probably, like Peter and I are probably at the same level of maturity at this point. And uh, I think we're probably 10 years apart. So I mean, it's a big, bold statement, but the point is like different ages happen at different times and different, that that change happens at different times.
1: Oh, definitely. Like 30 is such a, well, wide spectrum, you know, people who are just getting married. You have people who have a couple kids. You have people who are just getting divorced. You have people who are single and going to be single. Um, right. And like yeah. total wide variety of motivation to that whole thing. I, that motivation question I think is so much more important than right. But it's the, it's the way you ask it. Like I'm trying to think of the best way to ask it. And just one thing that came to mind was like, Listen, you're a software engineer, you're in demand, you're going to get good salary offers wherever you go. Money is obviously not going to be the differentiator. So taking money off the table, what type of work motivates you? Like, I think that's a pretty good way to do it. Obviously, like to A-B test that. But, you know, and then that question (laughs) kind of trickles down into anything you do right? Like why are you doing anything that you're doing?
0: Yeah. I mean, it really tells a lot. Um, it's a great, it's a great conversation anyway, <laughs> on the other side of that question. Um, it tells you a lot about somebody, um, but even if someone isn't able to have a conscious relationship with what their motivations are, they still have them and they still do tend to you know, change in these different ways. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things about context. Like that's the other part of teams. I think I find interesting. and I think is necessary again at the kind of smaller bespoke skunkworks kind of level is being able to assemble teams of different types of people and different levels of talent and different types of motivations. So I've had teams that are people who you've got your young, you know, typical young hotshot talent, awesome, you know, gunning all the time folks, and folks who are at a completely different stage of life. Who fit right into that because everybody is working together in a way that's healthy. Um, that's fine, but it, it, it's you know, I, I find the challenge of putting together teams of, of varying types of folks and varying ability levels much more interesting than just like having a hard, you know, a bunch of hard nos at the door in, in, in order to, you know, up the level or whatever. I, I think the I don't know, cosmopolitan team is, is really interesting to me personally. That's
1: do you mind if we maybe dive into the darker side, the the toxic environments? Um, Ugh. <laughs> we don't have to. We can keep it light, but I've got some good examples. Yeah, I mean, I've been struggling with one and it's interesting because it's like what we we're talking about, it's the little things that have really changed the course. Um and it's a combination of issues where any one wouldn't have been negative, but as a group, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. I can go into some specifics if you'd like, or if you'd want to talk about any that got yeah, your I'm mind. Shocked,
0: man, I, I've been taking up way too much oxygen here.
1: Oh no, that's that's why you're here. Like we're here to listen. <laughs> So if you want to get any off your chest, go for it. Otherwise I can.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about it. I mean, what if you uh, you know, step into my office, sit on the couch. Like, what if you
1: Cool. and Sergey, I don't know if you have any that come to mind as well. But um like there's uh I don't know, I think when there's weak leadership and then there's someone who's really technically uh inclined and the leadership maybe doesn't understand right that. Um this person who's super technically inclined, their default is uh, they're reactionary based, not being proactive. So things don't change unless there is an issue. Um, and everything is like nice to do, but there's no time because you're too busy reacting to things.
0: that that's not nearly as toxic as I thought you were going to reference. So,
1: oh yeah. Okay.
0: All, it's got some horror stories. <laughs>
1: oh man. I really got to go down the rabbit hole. I got to hear one of yours.
0: Yeah. I, it, it can get dark, man. I mean the, the different types of leaders you run into, especially in the small company kind of space. I mean, it's, it's easy to end up with um, <laughs> I want to step carefully, but it's easy to end up alongside you know, toxic personalities who are in, who have a lot of power. It's really uh, um, that happens a lot, but um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I was thinking, I was trying to think about the the story you were just telling there. Um, I, you know, you know, lack of strong leadership is is excusable at times if there's humility to me anyway. Again, this is all just what I think about. To me, it's excusable when there's when it's coupled with humility. So often, um, especially in a startup environment, leaders are reactive all the time because things are coming at you all the time and changing all the time that force you to be reactive. And then when you're not in that mode, you really don't have a lot of spare resources to, to feel ambitious because you know you're just going to, you know, it's like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And as a startup Person, you know that your job is basically to get punched in the face all the time and react to it. So that can be excusable in those environments as long as, again, you feel aligned with the motivation of your your leadership and you know that they're, um, you know, doing, you know, I guess doing their best or whatever. Where it's, to me, where it's more frustrating is when I see leadership that sort of chases um, new initiatives all the time and doesn't, you know, with no sensitivity to what's going on in the company. Um, so someone who wants to do all 10 things at once instead of sequencing them and isn't really responding to what that's doing to their to their teams and that's i think those kind of environments that that you're talking about where it's kind of unnecessarily reactive or maybe generated by those leaders and if there's not humility there for them to go you know what i'm i've been doing this to you sorry you know just there's a lot going on if there's no if there's no way to bring that to a human level then it's going to breed resentment because it feels entitled You know, when people are just kind of throwing you around at projects. And so it it leads to retentment and ultimately uh, attrition. And worse, you know, just a crap working experience, you know, where you don't need, it doesn't need to be. I know that's what I think about when when you mention that. I'm trying to think of, um, I've definitely had those, I've had a couple of those experiences myself. And unfortunately, they were also paired with personalities that I think are um, pretty disordered. Um, and, you know, you run into a lot of narcissists and, and folks like that at, in power and in tech. and if they don't have a handle on it, uh, then all of the stuff you just all that startup stuff that we're just talking about gets expressed and delivered in really toxic ways that both hurt people and keep people there. It's really bad. I've seen it a, a couple different times. So those are those are environments that you just have to leave. So. What makes a good leader? In your mind, that's what? what <laughs> uh, man, I don't do those. That question, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think that um, maybe
1: talk about. Can I rephrase your question, yeah. Sergey? Slightly. Go ahead. Uh, Sorry. I, I love the question because uh, Sergey always just he's silent and then he hits these, these bangers. I've <laughs> yeah, um, been called a sniper. <laughs> yeah, he's just <laughs> great. A, great. Way to um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh in your work experience you can be as specific as you'd like but think of top two people uh who are the best leaders you've worked with and characteristics they had and maybe any overlapping ones
0: well that's that's interesting you know the best the best leaders that i've worked with um I'm trying to think back. This is probably, you know, like my, the second job I ever had, I felt like, was an incredibly well-run, little, fairly little company that, that grew and is still around, literally. I mean, it's quite a success uh, if you think about it. And we were going through that growth period. But somehow the leadership there did a few different things. Um, it, leadership made it clear, maybe by necessity, that they were thinking about the people in the company all the time. They made it clear too that they were really intentional about the messages that that they sent out and the types of things that you know they they communicated to employees They put energy into culture in a very explicit way that's really kind of where I learned where I saw that I thought I'd done better than anywhere else I've been honestly or more intentionally anyway so for instance, we would have Friday afternoon um forget what we call them but it was just everybody would gather together we had the company wide all hands every friday afternoon and they used that as a venue to sort of um both communicate what was going on in the business and sort of teach about the types of things they were doing to try to run the company so they like they had a book club at the executive level and when they got done they would present that and they go here's here's kind of how we think about this business and what we've been you know keying on after reading this book and where they'll talk about a major client that just landed and they'll talk you know process for this was crazy and they'll go all, all the way down through it in a way that really brings people into the business and into what they're doing in their work and i just thought that the intentionality around around supporting people the intentionality around um uh you know communication and, and developing culture i think was were some takeaways there that just i still have a warm feeling about that company to this day and i left 18 years ago so um those are the kind of the best leaders that I've run into. The other thing is they didn't, well, I was going to say they didn't make it about themselves a lot, which I don't think is actually totally true. I think dynamic leaders and small companies actually do need to have a sort of, they need to be the face of the company. They need to have some identity there. Um, but it's just, I don't know they, again, that, that, that focus on people, the Marine Corps has a saying, I, if you want to learn about leadership, Go read books about the Marine Corps and officer candidate school and boot camp and the way that the Corps has scaled really great leadership development. 16 weeks, you come out an actual leader, not just somebody following a process, but somebody who has instincts. It's amazing what they do. But their philosophy is around, is officers eat last. They look out for their people and they make sure their people are fed in every type of way that you can feed people. Um, And that's what they focus on. And they know if they do that, that's, you know, that's, that binds their teams to them. Uh, It is the best thing for their teams. It creates loyalty. That's a motivating factor. It's really fascinating. So I would, I guess you asked what it takes to be a good leader. I would simply point you at the Marine Corps and draw lessons from that as much as, as much as possible.
1: Okay. I'm going to be a little mean, perhaps. Do you look at the Marine Corps and draw lessons from Um.
0: Yeah, of course. So here's, here's a lesson. Um, I read a great book a few years ago. I sort of had this year where I was reading a lot about the Corps. I just kind of tapped into that thread and it's called one bullet away. And it was about a literature major at Cornell who after college decided to join the Marine Corps and he went to OCS. He served in Afghanistan, uh, and he served, uh, in Iraq in Afghanistan as a Marine and in Iraq as a, uh, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I'm blanking on the extra. Anyway, it's the extra marines, the special forces of the Marine Corps. And he talked about his experience going through um, uh, officer candidate school and some of the lessons that he learned as someone who came in. He didn't go to ROTC and he didn't come from a military family, so everything was new to him. And he found the formality of the communication and the requirements in the military to be kind of arbitrary. For instance. Um, if he lined up in the morning and his belt buckle was not lined up perfectly with the seam of his pants, perfectly, um, that was, uh, he was going to get berated for, for getting Marines killed. and It would get that, that quick and that fast. And at first it made no sense to him and it felt overblown until he learned kind of how the Corps operates. He goes, you know, if you let that standard slip, that communicates to the people around you that they can let their standards slip just a little bit too and it's a slippery slope it's something that builds on each other so today's unaligned belt buckle when it's supposed to be is tomorrow's you know jammed m16 because it wasn't uh, maintained properly stuff like that so maintaining those standards and what it takes to model those things and the consistency required to model those things um, that was something i really took away i don't it's not like i meet those standards i'm not I'm not a mean but um, I do talk to my teams in that way, and I talk to the managers that, that I manage about that and how important it is to be sticklers about those very precise details in order to communicate the kind of culture that you need. Um, so that, that's one lesson um, that I found interesting. The other thing is um, the going directly at issues. So in the way they plan missions as well as the way they deal with um, you know folks in the day-to-day, Marine Corps leaders get to directly to the point of what it is that they're trying to do and they don't spend time kind of spinning around it and walking around it or finding reasons not to deal with it um everything is urgent in the marine corps and um and very direct and that's another thing that i i have either spoke to me because i already approached things that way or i've adopted after reading about that stuff i don't remember but it's a, it's a really important way of, of that i approach my job i love the tr-
1: oh sorry you go sir. So good
0: uh yeah no good
2: um i can wait Uh, i would follow-up but uh it's kind of trying to tie some of the stuff we talked about early on with with some of this this more hardcore stuff
1: go sniper go
2: (laughs) okay you
0: brought up sniper man i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah true true all
2: right all right sniping time Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um so to me, something that's hard, and, and I like that you what you said about leaders eating last, because uh, I just got Simon Sinek's book, uh, "Leaders Eat Last." i meaning to read it, and one of the things that I'm curious about is how to kind of reconcile some of this, this uh, hardcore marine, very intense, very detail-oriented, very precise, very high stakes, high high bar, right? And that's related to what you were saying about Kobe or Jordan working these really intense environments that produce excellence, balancing that out with some of the the softer side of things with, you know, mental health and work-life balance and, you know, microaggressions and good culture, right? Do you think there's a way to kind of get the best of both worlds? Because I, I could see one leading to, you know, the more intense one leading to high stress and all these other issues and mental health and burnout and things of that nature. But then the, the softer side leading to um you know lower quality standards and sort of uh, apathy and and people just checking out or or getting too complacent um how do you get how do you get how do you manage both of those things
1: so it was going to be like i completely agree with that question and then also it's uh it you need both right but like how do you describe that? Because I was going to say the same thing. It, oh, yeah, sorry.
0: I I don't know. That's a really interesting question, and it's certainly something that comes up all the time. And I don't know that I do it well. Um, and you're right. Permissiveness. You know, here's something I learned from parenting that I've been able to bring into work. So I, I took some parenting classes and read some stuff early on, and learned about the difference. There's sort of three broad ways to parents. So it's not that simple, but it's, it's kind of three classes of types of behavior. One is, is permissive where you're sort of, you know, cool, cool dad or whatever. And you're, you know, kind of letting, you're just not setting any boundaries. There's, um, authoritarian, where you're just directing children that's it you're not meeting them where they are you're not you you just you know lots of hard boundaries discipline all that kind of stuff I, uh, why because i said so that kind of stuff and then there's authoritative um which is seen as the healthiest way to parent where um, you are setting boundaries and you're doing it in a way that um, your child understands and is um so you're explaining things to them, you're directly connecting consequences. So if, if my son is, is playing with a toy in a way that is, is inappropriate or dangerous or, or whatever, um, and he does it after a couple of times when you tell him to stop, I simply calmly walk over and tell him, you know, I acknowledge that he's having trouble playing with that toy right then, and so I'm going to take it away for a few minutes um, because I can't allow him to do that. It's a very easy way of talking to your child. He hands me the toy, I put it up, and we move on to something else. No tantrum. That's opposed to, say, coming over and sending him to his room or something like that that just doesn't make any sense. So there's this authoritative approach I think is really key um, when you're trying to set, uh, when you're trying to keep high quality standards um, without creating that, that kind of environment. Um, so through positive uh, reinforcement instead of, instead of negative. It just takes devoting your energy to different things. So, of course, you you have objective standards when you bring people in. I talk about team-orientedness, but I also do have engineers do system and coding reviews, and I get different opinions and look at their background and stuff like that. Team-orientedness is just the basic thing to get you in the door. So there is the the quality of the people that – or the quality of the the past work history of the people that you bring in and, how, again, how they've approached things and whether they're quote unquote, the right kind of folks. If you get that right, um, motivating for high quality actually isn't as hard as I think most people think. If you're motivated well by by the right set of factors in our industry, again, a creative driven, ambitious industry um, and, you, and you create the right environment, you don't you don't need to draw out high quality work from people. They'll, they'll start, they do it themselves in their own work and they ask for it from the people around them. Um, and what you do you know, and then from there, you develop a, a culture. So uh, on my current team, we've developed a culture around very, very conservative um, and precise approaches to how we um, develop and deploy software, a very high bar for quality and, and accuracy. We have a set of uh, uh, priorities that we look to, correctness, scale, uh, correctness, stability, scalability, performance, and features in that order, and reprioritize things appropriately. And we, talk, we use those now significantly. So you create this culture that draws the best work out of people, um, and anybody who walks into that is going to be driven to to rise to the occasion. And you do it without running around, you know, criticizing people publicly and harping on code reviews or whatever it is that, you know, PR reviews or whatever it is that you might do on the negative side. You don't have to do that stuff. You create an environment where, um, again, people are kind of enforcing their own kind of cultural values, shared values. And then people will perform to those
1: I, I love so much of that. I would almost say there's one more portion, and I think you touched on it previously in a comment, but like interviewing, right? You say, hey, I've had this issue, right? And so you're connecting and you say, I've fallen. These are my things. So this is kind of why we're asking that question. Um, and then for the child, the same thing. Instead of like, I never liked... You can't do this because of blah, right? I always liked if you do this, this will most likely happen. Yeah. Right? Great. Another group. and then yep. right, explaining the regionality behind it. So like it reminded me, I was a camp counselor one summer and the camp had this rule where the kids always had to have another buddy with them wherever they went. Personally, didn't like that rule. So I told them, I was like, hey guys, this is their rule. If you're caught alone. You'll be in trouble, but I'm not going to stop you. (laughs) So, like that was my thing. Um, But it's the same type of thing in so many of those things. Like the Marines, instead of berating somebody for having their belt out of line, right? It would it would be some of that more emotional intelligence, right? We found that
0: <laughs> <Or instead. laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to criticize the Marine Corps, right? Maybe that's no, the right. way to do that. But I'll tell you. What, sorry to interject. i I'm
1: No, no, going. go.
0: Well, I would just say that to draw that example. Yes, the the sergeant is yelling at you in that moment, and yes, they're they're you know setting a pretty hard boundary there. But if you notice, they're also telling you why, and they're inviting you to lean into that to understand it. So when they say fix your belt buckle or Marines get killed. That's such an audacious statement said with such force and certainty that it causes that person to be drawn into that question. And instead of your belt buckles off, give me 20. That's a different way of approaching that, right? It doesn't teach anybody or inspire anybody. But when you, again, when you see that happen and the, and the person in front of you's belt buckle is perfect and it's been perfect every day. And you remember that it's been perfect every day. They have authority on this. They live it. When they, are, I, I do think that that's actually, even though again they're yelling, um, that is a an authoritative way of approaching that that situation and, and a, is highly effective. So well, I don't know, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but that's I do see it as, as a little different.
1: I, I mean I, I think it goes back to the software thing, and I found too, you know, there's all the social stuff, there's all the soft stuff, but like when it comes to it, at the end of the day. You're making code changes and, you know, deploying those changes. And if you have a good process, like I would love to dive into more of that process if you could, uh, the steps, because we do a similar thing at work. I don't think it's as defined as that, um, but it it's like we do these things because they stop so many <laughs> bad things from happening. Um, so. Yeah,
0: sorry. I, I, I you're asking about process for development or quality control. What is it?
1: You said there was like a list of five things, and you said in that order. Ah. Um, so I don't know if you want to dive into that a little.
0: Right. So the application that I run currently has very, very high standards for performance and accuracy, and it has very specific expectations from its users that really are around the factors of again correctness, stability, and scale and performance.
1: And so, right, hold on. Okay. Go. Could you dive into each yeah, one? Yeah. Of those? yeah. I'll, I'll
0: stop. I mean, I'll, I'll go back through them. Yeah, I'm just kind of ripping through that that idea. So that's where these come from. They may not be the right way to prioritize everything in every team, but for our team, this works. So I express it as a as a pyramid. You know, this kind of the kind of standard triangle way of expressing this stuff. At the bottom, the base is correctness for us. So it doesn't matter what we do if our application is incorrect. It's not behaving as you would expect those types of applications to behave. Um, if a documented behavior is incorrect. Um, and it also gets into if there are bugs, if there are um, uh, you know regulatory issues or security issues, all of those are are centered around correctness. Um, because if we're not doing all those things, if we're breaking regulatory rules or our application isn't behaving as it's supposed to, we're not a thing. We're not an application if we don't have correctness. So nothing else is going to matter. Our uptime performance, none of that stuff is going to matter if we're building the wrong thing or haven't built the right thing completely. So that's correctness. Um, the second layer, and it's the big, big wide layer in the middle, it's the big tallest chunk of this, is stability. And again, this is for us. So in a lot of cases, features, for instance, would be the most because that's what drives their users. But our users are driven by rock solid stability. So that's uptime, that's latency stability. Um, that's throughput stability. In other words, how transparent are you to what they're trying to do on, the, on your platform? That's the stability piece. and We put a lot of investment in that. Within stability is a little subsection for scale. This is just something that in our industry we talk about quite a bit. So throughput, the amount of, of things that you can process, that's where we, we look at scale. And scale contributes to, to stability because if you don't have it and you don't have enough, you don't have enough of it, it will affect your stability. Uh, so scale's in there, and it's, it's a sub-discipline sub, uh, uh, of, of stability. And again, it's not scale infinitely, it's scale enough. You know, In our case, we shoot for, we're not there yet, but we shoot for 10x, our all-time high level throughput is the bar that we would like to get to, and, and we'd like to verify our software and systems are able to operate at. That's a huge buffer, because in our industry, it's that, that's what we need. But whatever your your multiplier is, that's scale, and it needs to be just kind of appropriate to be safe and stable. The next layer above that uh, is performance. And that's where we get into the competitive part. So if you've got your basics down, then you go, okay, how much can we shave off of our performance? How closer to some competitor can we get? For us, that's latency. Um, So those are those things. But we don't don't, um, elevate latency over stability. So if you've got latency that, if you've got an improvement that improves latency 90% of the time but causes it to get worse 10% of the time or causes some volatility in that latency, we won't accept that um, on our on our application because, again, the stability of, of latency is much more important for our users. That's not always the case. It's not more important for Google search users, for instance. Um, so performance is right up there and then you're the, it, it sort of at the end of that chain. And then the last thing for us is features. Uh and again, in our particular application, uh, the set of features that people really need are fairly small, and none of them would ask for a feature over any of the other layers of the stack that I just talked about. Um, and none of that needs to be explained to our customers. So um, for our application, that's the the very last thing that we get to, and we often don't get to it at all for months at a time. So that that's takes me awesome. through that.
1: Yeah, that's a great overview. So actually, I don't think we touched on this, but... Uh... I was in POS and now I'm in payments. So I'm dealing with a lot of like, right. No one cares about uh, if the credit card transact like features in a credit card transaction, not very interesting, but the, it being correct, it being stable, it performing, right. Those are basically critical. Um,
0: These are finance industry priorities.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, for the correctiveness, maybe we could dive into that a little bit. Uh, like what's, what are your testing coverage? Like, what are you looking for or yeah, do you have syntactical stuff? Like,
0: you know, it's, it's a couple of things. Um, it's all that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, that's always an evolving art, right? So testing, obviously, um, we have ambitious goals around test coverage and things like that. It's always a work in progress over there. But yeah, like you your standard means of doing it. But really where quality is going to come in is in your culture. So if you've set those principles and people buy into those principles, then engineers, when they're working together, will make sure they're doing things uh, that enforce correctness because you've created that space for them to do so. I, I my, The folks on my team, I use the example of, say, assembly lines, um, UAW assembly lines in Detroit. They've got a bunch of big red buttons everywhere that shut down the line immediately. And employees are almost universally empowered to hit that button um, if they see anything. And there's very, very little penalty for someone making a mistake. They think something's dangerous and it turned out it wasn't. Um, same thing with sailing boats. I sail on fairly large sail cru- uh, crews and races. And if someone shouts hold, it doesn't matter where it came from. You're gonna, everyone stops what they're doing to figure out what's wrong what's about to be dangerous. And I try to enforce that those same ideas on, on our team where any engineer, I don't care if you started yesterday, if you've got a spidey sense that something's off, you you holler hold, you hit pause, you hit the red button, and you keep that thing from going out the door. And you're always going to be supported by me if you do that. And so once people know that they're safe enforcing those standards, they're safe being a little bit of a, what in another context might be a jerk or something in those contexts, um, and they know that's encouraged, they start doing it. and yeah, I mean, you don't you don't need to explain it. Engineers want to do high quality work, but you have to create space for them to do, and you have to make it psychologically safe for them to help enforce those ideas.
1: How about observability alerts, like yeah. metrics, things like that? Because I found that like the testing, observability metrics, and alerting. Like if you have those four things, it's, it's very hard to let something go out the door that will cause issues?
0: I'd say that it's, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think those are, you can tell, I, I um, kind of take it for granted that that's easy enough. You know, th- there's a lot of, of art out there around those types of things, right? So we're all familiar with the idea of, you know, observability and logging and, um, you know, test coverage and code reviews and stuff like that. So that stuff, you know, it's, it's kind of table stakes in our industry at this point. But those systems are worthless if the people interacting with them don't buy into it. Um, it's like that old phrase, you sign a contract, your contract's only as good as the people who, who sign it. And that's very true. Like If people don't really believe in what's in a contract, they'll break it. And it's the same thing on any kind of process or procedure you put into a creative team. If people think it's just a management thing, they'll do it, they'll check the box, but they're not really going to lean into what it is you're trying to get them to do. They have to buy into the underlying values that create those process. And that's where you got to focus your energy. If you get them to buy in on the values, you don't have to explain much of anything else. Um, so yeah. So, uh, and I want to use those as an example of how this can work. Like, um, Oh, and, and another important point too, about, about testing and observability and things. So, you're bringing engineers into an environment saying you need to make sure everything's, you know, uh, you're know, you logging all of your stats to this, this system, right? But if you haven't provided a library and made it easy to do and provided lots of examples, uh, maybe take them through a case, or, a, a ticket or something where they add those stats to some, if you don't kind of meet people where they are and bring them into what it is that the tool set and the techniques that you want them to interact with, again, they'll kind of do it, but they'll never quite understand why or they won't you know they'll, they'll kind of skip it where they can that's when test coverage starts to drop um you have to kind of meet people where they are and and bring them into the tools and the things that you want to do you don't have to you're paying them they, they can go learn it on their own you don't have to but if you want to be as effective as possible as quickly as possible you'll just allow for the fact that human nature is going to make people shy away from things they don't yet understand so that's that's one thing I try to tell. Um, I try to get into my engineers, too, when they roll out a new tool and they may send an email or something to the team. Here's a new tool. Here's how you use it. And then later they get upset that people aren't using it yet. Um, I just remind them that 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 the empirical results are that their communication and their way of, of bringing that tool to the team wasn't sufficient. Um, so how can we how can we make that better? That's when we get into you know, lunch and learns and office hours and things like that.
1: Demo days.
0: you got to bring people to the tools. You certainly have to have those tools, first of all. And if you want them used effectively, you got to bring people to it. Um, you've got to hold people accountable to it. So you got to spend a period of time where you are running around kind of nipping people who, who aren't doing it right. But that that flywheel gets moving pretty, pretty quickly if you've just got like, um, those factors in place. You make it easy for people. They understand why they should do it. And you remind them to do it.
1: Definitely. Start with the why.
0: <laughs> or the why. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. If I There's can the new... on why we need to do something, you're in. That's all it takes.
1: What motivates you and why are we doing something? Those are that's, – that's the new parenting technique. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> what are that's, you trying to that's... communicate? Have a toddler. <laughs> the question is what are you trying to communicate? That comes into work too actually yeah anyway
1: yeah well i mean that's the culture that's the right why and what motivates you Mm
2: -hmm. isn't that a thing though like the like i think it's like five-year-olds are are the people who are the demographic that asks ask the most questions
0: yeah well my son when he turned three immediately went into why mode it's very (laughs) common yep the famous everyone you know are we there yet and why are the two things we all know about kids and it's really amazing how compulsively it, it happens. So his instant ant, uh, reaction to anything is to go "Why," you know, uh, and, you know, like anything, like totally out of context. It's really kind of funny sometimes. Um, but yeah, they're they're wired to ask why <laughs> for sure.
1: I love the fifth why.
0: Yeah, yeah. He does his five whys on every single thing in life right now. It's amazing.
1: <laughs> but but that answer to whatever the fifth thing is is like. Mm. I have to think about a lot of it, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, yeah. If you're doing it right, <laughs> yeah. that stuff, it really does make you think. It yeah. gets existential Especially, real quick. It really does. You know, we've had this whole thing about um, bullies. So somewhere early on, Finn learned that word and he started to to act it out a little bit through his dinosaurs and stuff. And so we've been... Um, Talking a lot about the whys of of bullies and and what that's about. It, it's just something I hadn't thought of in a long time explicitly. Like we have a, a fish tank that we draw a lot of lessons from, and we had a bully fish in the fish tank that was chasing all the other fish around. And I'm like, look, Finn, there's this bully fish. We got to do something about it. Why? Well, he's he's making the other fish nervous. Why? Because it's not nice when you are getting chased around and you don't know why. Why is it not nice? <laughs> you know, you, you go pretty deep eventually kind of run out of things to say but um and then we you know i said well uh why is he a bully well because he doesn't have a lot of friends let's get him some friends so we got some more fish and he stopped being a bully um but the why's are really interesting i had never thought about that topic and my son um, demanded that we do (laughs) it's great
2: i guess that's maybe one of the one of the reasons why you know parenting such a growth experience for parents too right because you're forced to kind of revisit the these really basic questions but as an adult right and trying to frame it as a way for for someone else to kind of you know understand understand it well right like you're, it's your kid you care about him you want him to know you want him to know why and you, you want to give him a good answer
0: yeah yeah One, i mean it's yeah
1: and two i think it kind of goes back to something that uh we interviewed sergey's or interviewed Sergei's dad was on the podcast uh, previous episode and something that he said that absolutely stuck with me and I've been really just kind of chewing on for a while is learning to enjoy the process, right? So learning to enjoy that five why question or you know, going back to the sports, it's like if you enjoy the process, the goal is almost secondary. Um, and again, I think it's like, you can take it to jobs, yep. you know, if you, if you enjoy the process, monetary is definitely secondary to anything.
0: A hundred percent, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, again, just time and time. Like that's, those are the things that actually motivate people. they people are going to do what they're going to do, um, what their motivations are, regardless of what the rules are around them. So. It's very cool yeah parenting it forces you well and no one's ready for parenting either so not only does it force you to grapple with these contacts supposedly as an adult but you're not quite an adult yet <laughs> you have to you know parenting kind of makes you that way and so it's like real, real growth exercise for everybody
1: here's my naivety i'm ready for it <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the way i go into everything i always think i'm so ready for it <laughs>
0: Everybody's ready. Everybody's ready in the sense that nobody's ready, right? Like, it's just, you can't possibly know what's on the other side of that until you're there. And then you know it, and it's fine, and everybody grows. But like, yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody's really actually understands uh, that stuff. It sounds, I don't mean that to sound condescending. No, no, no. No, no, It
1: totally makes sense, because I don't know what's going to happen. So how can I be ready for something that I don't know what's going to happen? But, I'm ready for the unknown. Like I'm ready to take the jump. If that makes sense. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's
1: the way I look at most things. It's like, I'm ready to take on this challenge. Let's go.
0: Yeah. You're purposefully getting in over your head by definition, you know? So yeah, no one's ready, you know, in that sense, I guess you're ready to take it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's amazing. I've never known this level of responsibility. Certainly not at work. I thought I had a lot of responsibility for, startups or my friend's jobs or you know achieving some impossible goals stuff like that i thought that that was responsibility nothing i mean it just pales in comparison to the weight <laughs> of being a parent have fun but enjoy the experience
1: <laughs> enjoy the process cool is it? <laughs> yeah
0: constructive responsibility feels good responsibility you know what i mean but it is it's a lot and you're not yeah anyway have fun when you guys do again
1: june
0: june Awesome. Awesome.
1: It's coming up quick. Excited for you. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to get them together once they're of speaking age. You can do it before, but it's not as interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Staring at each other. And sort of old enough. You know, one thing about young kids, like when a six-year-old is hanging with a three-year-old, they don't really see it as a fascinating, you know, three-year-old. They're just an effective six-year-old. It's like the only, <laughs> the only frame they yeah. have to be so self-centered uh, <laughs> by nature. Well, then you got play. the
1: growth spirits and the chemicals and the developments. I would, uh, I don't know if I've recommended this book to you before, but one book I'd recommend, uh, good at any age, but I'll probably reread it once I have a kid, uh, is the male brain. Uh, psychologist looks at male development throughout a life and just the different chemicals that take place and, the psychology that it creates, ah, uh, very interesting.
0: That does sound really interesting. Thanks. I think I've heard of that before, but I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't really grok that stuff. That's pretty cool. You know, another book that is in line with this
1: stuff too. Do you ever read blink? Mm-hmm. By Mark Malcolm Gladwell.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think I, I don't know. I can't remember if I read blink. Was that the one about, um, I, I've, re- I've read a couple of his books, but I'm not sure if I read that one.
0: Yeah. Th- this one is about um, the role of the self con of the subconscious and intuition and things like that. And so it's a bunch of, it's a standard Gladwell like pseudoscience stuff. You know, it's definitely, you know, it's finding the facts where he needs to, but it, it's real. And uh, I don't know about if, what it'll do for you guys, but it um, really made me appreciate the importance of intuition and where before I had really diminished it as an engineer. Um, Afterwards, I really embraced it. And it explains so much of kind of how we operate. And and again, it really makes you appreciate it. I'd always thought of the subconscious as like a, a lesser brain, you know, doing some things like it makes me, you know, kick the ball the right way or whatever. But this book made me kind of flip that and really think about the conscious mind as just the receiver of all these different kind of signals that are coming up, bubbling up from antiquity inside your head. And we have a conscious mind that can sort of choose a little bit what to do with those things. But that brain really drives what we do. And it gives us, you know, the, you know, it's evaluating a lot more things and making a lot more decisions for us than we give it credit for. Anyway, Blink's a really interesting book, I thought.
1: I completely agree with you on the way that the the subconscious drives the conscious. But I would also say that your conscious, uh, it's kind of like that environment, right? That we're talking about. Your conscious can actively puts you in environments and situations for your subconscious to yeah. be beneficial to you or to be negative. So it's a, it's yep. a feedback loop.
0: Totally. And that's the, it's the human condition, right? It's just like, you've got this conscious brain that wants to do what it wants to. And then you've got this very non-negotiable subconscious that's going to react to it, however it's going to react. And your conscious brain isn't always healthy enough to do the right things. <laughs> Amazing. You have two people living inside you. It's great. (laughs) You don't have to eat a lot. (laughs) That's
2: weird, weird, weird thought for sure.
0: Yeah. So go read the book. It's cool. (laughs) Maybe maybe unsettling, I don't know.
1: Well, guys, this has been an awesome conversation.
0: Thanks for the time. This is really fun. Thanks again, Jason. That
1: wraps it up, episode eleven. So thanks for listening.